So Revelation chapter 17, verses 1 through 6. Please give your attention as I read God's holy word. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And on her forehead a name was written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and, the abom- and of the abominations of the earth. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So I'm trying to think how long. Has it been a month? Okay, so a month ago. (laughs) um, When we last we looked at the book of Revelation, we looked at the seventh bowl that we see here in chapter 16, verses 20, or 17 through 21. It is the seventh bowl of God's judgment. And the bowls of judgment, which comes, you know, pretty much goes from chapter 15 through 16, comprise the fourth cycle in the book of Revelation. The fourth cycle that we see that starts in chapter 4 and goes to the end of the book. Uh, that looks at this period of the church age, that looks at this period of time between the ascension and resurrection of Jesus Christ until His return. And the bold judgments depict for us the finality of God's judgment. Because as we see in chapter 15, verse 1, we see that these seven angels carry seven bulls that are full of the wrath of God, and with that wrath, His wrath is complete. Judgment is complete. So these Bowls show us sort of the finality of God's judgment upon the wicked. And again, this is evident in that each bowl, when it is poured out, brings complete and total destruction upon everything that it is poured upon. So when it is poured upon the seas, we saw that all the seas turned to blood. All the life in the oceans died. When it was poured in the sky, all of the lights in the sky go out. When it is poured on the earth, all of the kingdoms of the earth go dark. So it is complete Final. Also, the, the bowl judgments rely heavily on imagery taken out of the Exodus when God rained the plagues on Egypt. So we see you know, boils and sores. We see hail. We see darkness. We see the, the water turning to blood. All of these call to mind God's judgment of the plagues on Egypt. In fact, The language we see here, again in chapter 15, verse 1, is that these contain the seven last plagues of God's wrath. So again, kind of calling to mind this idea that, that Exodus was sort of like a precursor of what we see in final judgment. What we see, uh, what God did to the Egyptians in Exodus was a foretaste of what He does at the end of the age when He brings final judgment. So that's sort of like 
you know, that's the walk in the park, right? Exodus is the walk in the park. What we see in the bold judgments is that's the real, you know, judgment, the finality, the consummation of judgment. Now, lest we lose sight of Revelation's purpose, we need to be reminded that the book of Revelation was written, in a sense, to give hope to God's people, to give them hope uh, to the people who are undergoing persecution, to give hope to the people who are living in a hostile world, a world that seeks their destruction. This book is meant to give hope and encouragement. In fact, the book begins when we, if you remember all the way back in, I think it was September of 2020, I think by the time we got to this passage, it might have been November or so, but way back in the very beginning of chapter 1, the book opens with a vision of the exalted Jesus Christ in all of His glory. You know, you look through the Gospels and Jesus is a man, right? When he's, when, during His earthly ministry, He is a man. And as the prophet Isaiah says, He has a form that no one would notice. He was a man that was very humble, a man that had no home, a man that just kind of went from town to town preaching and teaching, had a ragtag bunch of you know, followers of fishermen and zealots and tax collectors and sinners and former harlots and all these things. This is the kind of group that Jesus is bringing around. And you, know, you, don't, you look at him and you don't think anything special. And then when he was executed, he was executed as a criminal between two criminals, Right? But now, Jesus is here. You see Him at the beginning of the book of Revelation. No more is He Jesus meek and mild. No more is He Jesus weak and humble. He is Jesus in full glory. Meant to give us hope that our Savior, right, when He was on earth, when He returns, He will return as our glorious Messiah, conquering King. Then we saw the seven letters, right? The seven letters to the churches speak words of rebuke. They speak words of correction. They speak words of commendation and encouragement and comfort as these letters call God's people to overcome and to persevere. To the, to the churches that were doing poorly, he also says you need to repent of your sins. And to the one who overcomes, wonderful things will happen to you. So these letters, you get a picture of Jesus Christ in all glory. You get these letters giving us words of comfort and exhorting us to, to overcome and persevere. And then finally, you see these cycles of visions that show us God's sovereign control over the affairs of history. World history is each cycle that we've seen so far ends with the return of Christ. Ends with final judgment. It ends with His ultimate triumph over Satan and the forces of evil as well as the ultimate vindication of God's people. Now as we head into this chapter here, chapter 17, in the first six verses, we are beginning now the fifth cycle. This is cycle five in the book of Revelation. And it's another cycle of visions which will take us from chapter 17, verse 1, up to chapter 19, verse 10. And instead of showing us you know, a cycle of seven uh, acts of judgment from God like the seals and the trumpets and the bowls do, and instead of showing us sort of like a, the history of the world as depicted in the woman and the dragon and the child, this cycle shows us two women. Now, it, it focuses mostly on the first woman, but at the end you see the second woman. It focuses on the great harlot of Babylon, 
And at the very end, it shows us the pristine bride of Christ, the church. So it shows us two women, the harlot and the bride. And these visions show us the destruction of Babylon. If you remember, Babylon is symbolic of pretty much everything that stands opposed to God, that stands opposed to his Christ, and that stands opposed to his people. So Revelation 17, verses 1-6 through now here will introduce us to this great harlot who is arrayed in purple and scarlet and who sits upon the scarlet beast. So in this passage, we're going to see the great harlot introduced in verses 1-2, through the great harlot's appearance in verses 3-5, through and then the great harlot's transgression, the transgression for which she will be judged in verse 6. Two, the great harlot's introduction. Now, this vision that John receives here begins with one of the seven angels. So, this is, you know, these visions, while they're different, there's continuity sometimes between them. So, the, even though the last cycle ended with the seventh angel pouring out his bowl, we see this sort of continuation is this angel that poured out that bowl now goes up to John and, 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 and speaks with him. So he, this, this angel, the one, who, one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls, speaks with John in verses 1 through 2. So look at those verses again with me. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and talked with me, saying to me, Come, and I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, And the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So this angel invites John to come and witness the judgment of this great harlot. Now, when you think of harlot, what comes to mind? What's that? Whore, okay. Oh, it says the whore of Babylon, okay. A loose woman? Okay. But how do harlots sort of appear? I mean, they're, they're not ugly, right? At least, not physically ugly. They're, they're, they, they should appear alluring, seductive, tempting, right? That's the idea. There's seduction, there's mystery, there's allurement. A harlot is one who attempts to appeal to a man's baser instincts, right? His, his sort of baser physical sex drive. Yet the Bible gives, obviously, ample warnings to avoid the harlot in many, many passages. We're going to look at a few of them. Uh, So keep your finger here in Revelation 17. Just turn to the book of Proverbs. And we've got three passages in the book of Proverbs. First one will be in Proverbs chapter 5. Now, of course, the book of Proverbs, mostly written by Solomon. There are a few Proverbs written by other people at the end of the book. But the Proverbs of Solomon, most of the Proverbs that he gives are sort of like pithy one-line statements of wisdom. But chapters 1 through 9 are sort of an introduction to the book of Proverbs, and they sort of describe a father's instruction to his young son. And he gives him many words of wisdom. And, And here in chapter... Five, we're going to read the first 14 verses. 
Here's Solomon saying to his son, My son, pay attention to my wisdom. Lend your ear to my understanding, that you may preserve discretion and your lips may keep knowledge. For the lips of an immoral woman drip honey, and her mouth is smoother than oil. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood, sharp as a two-edged sword. Her feet go down to death. Her steps lay hold of hell, lest you ponder her path of life. Her ways are unstable. You do not know them. Therefore, hear me now, my children, and do not depart from the words of my mouth. Remove your way far from her, and do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the cruel one. Lest aliens be filled with your wealth and your labors go to the house of a foreigner and you mourn at last when your flesh and your body are consumed and say, how I have hated instruction and how my heart despised correction. I have not obeyed the voice of my teachers nor inclined my ear to those who instructed me. I was on the verge of total ruin in the midst of the assembly and congregation." So here, Solomon speaks to his son, do not give in to the temptations of an immoral woman. Her lips drip honey. Honey is sweet, right? Honey is sweet. Her mouth is smoother than oil. It looks alluring. But in the end, she is bitter as wormwood. So you see beauty on the outside, ugliness and bitterness on the inside. Her mouth, her, which drips honey, also has a sharp two-edged sword. Her feet lead to death. Her steps lay hold of hell. He warns his son, avoid such women. They look appealing on the outside, but they will drag you to Sheol. They will drag you to hell. Again, Proverbs chapter 6 now, verses 20-29. through These are all very similar. When you sleep, they will keep you. And when you awake, they will speak with you. For the commandment is a lamp, and the law a light. Reproofs of instruction are the way of life to keep you from the evil woman, from the flattering tongue of a seductress. Do not lust after her beauty in your heart, nor let her allure you with her eyelids. For by means of a harlot, a man is reduced to a crust of bread, and an adulteress will prey upon his precious life. And I love this part. Can a man take fire in his bosom and his clothes not be burned? Can one walk on hot coals and his feet not be seared? So is he who goes into his neighbor's wife. Whoever touches her shall not be innocent. And again here, you see the seductive allure, the, the outward beauty of the harlot, right? Flattering tongue, do not lust after her beauty. Do not let her allure you with her eyelids. You know, you could almost see like the big eyelashes kind of batting at you. You know, hey, sailor, you know, whatever they say whenever, you know, you go to the, you know, to where the, the red light district, right? Do not fall into this, right? Because what happens, he says, when you do so, you are reduced to a crust of bread, right? Who here likes the crust on the bread? <laughs> I mean, you know, you see the people that cut the crust off the sandwiches, right? They, and what happens to the crust? You throw it away. I like the crust of bread, but... but. That's neither here nor there. But the idea is you cannot, you, cannot, you cannot toy with this kind of immorality, right? You cannot expect to take fire in your lap and not get burned. You cannot expect to walk on hot coals and not have your feet get burned. Let me go back to Revelation now. 
So you get these proverbs, right? Now, this is not the only place where it talks about this. You know, the New Testament talks about this plenty. Paul will say, flee sexual immorality. Right? Don't even mess with it. That's like the same wisdom that Solomon tells about this young fool, right, who's walking down the place where he shouldn't be. The idea is don't even go down that street. You know, it's like those who fall continually to the same sin. If you fall into a pit, why are you going down the street where the pit is? Take a different route. So he's like, don't even go down that street. Flee sexual immorality. And the Bible gives these warnings precisely, particularly about the immoral woman here, precisely because men tend to think with the wrong parts of our bodies, right? When alluring women are around, we tend to think with the wrong part of our bodies. So this woman here that we see in Revelation 17 is depicted as a harlot, something seducing, something alluring, something tempting, but something that will ultimately lead to death. Now again, remember, Revelation is apocalyptic. It's apocalyptic. So it uses this vivid imagery to depict truth. So what John sees here as a great harlot sitting on many waters isn't a literal harlot, but meant to represent something else. And that something else is the worldly culture and civilization that tempts us, society, the world system, if you will, that tempts us away from God. She is identified later on in verse 5 as Babylon. The fact that worldly culture and society and civilization is pictured as a great harlot should say a lot. Consider all the ways our current culture tries to seduce the church with its lures. Right? What are the three things that you see in the world that are temptations for us? You got fame, power, and wealth, right? Fame, power, and wealth. These are the things that the world uses to tempt us away from fidelity to Christ, away from fidelity to the church, and to give in to the seductions of the world. Social media is a prime example of this and how people find their sense of worth. Right by how many likes they get clicked, you know, when they post something on Twitter or Facebook. How many people clicked like? How many people shared this? Another TV show reference. Okay, I'm sure no one has seen this, but it's a show called Black Mirror. It's a it's a it's a British show, and it's sort of like it tells little vignettes. It's not a series, and the stories they tell sort of it's sort of kind of a take on how technology can go awry. And there's one great episode in which basically it's the social media phenomenon. But everything in the world is determined by how much people like what you post. So if you have a lot of likes, you have a lot of, uh, you have a lot of credit in society, it opens doors for you. But then when people stop liking what you put out there, your, your status reduces and you, have no longer, you no longer have the access you once had. And it's, you know, the, the main character in the story is this woman who is like frantically trying to up her status by getting more and more likes. It's kind of, it's interesting, but it's, it's kind of exactly what we see here, right? In, 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 in social media, it's like how many people, you know, you're, 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 you're basically trying to get people you don't know, most of, I mean, how many, you know, you see people that have like thousands of friends on Facebook or Twitter or whatever. It's like, how many of these people do you honestly really know? You know, and you're trying to get a bunch of people you don't know to follow you and like you, and when they don't, you, you know, that kind of ruins your, your day. Or consider the lure of political power and how even sometimes well-meaning crusading politicians can get 
lured and seduced by the power and prestige of being in Washington, D.C. And, and then all of a sudden their ideals become corrupted. I mean, you think about it, right? You know, it's like how many of these career politicians that have been in politics for 20, 30, 40 years? You know, it's like that's all they've known. That's the only life they've known. And everything that they do is geared toward staying there, <laughs> right? It's not working for the people. It's what can I, how can I lie to you so you'll continue to vote for me and I can continue to stay in power? Term limits for Congress. Just putting that out there. <laughs> Or consider, how about the lure of wealth? How tempting it can be to take shortcuts or compromise our values in order to make a few extra bucks. All these things, fame, power, wealth. The world system is pictured as a harlot to get across one other very important truth, and that is physical adultery. The, so the picture of the world system as a harlot is meant to show us how, you know, just as you're tempted to do, commit physical acts of adultery with a harlot, Spiritual adultery is idolatry. Okay, we saw that this morning when we looked at the book of Hosea. Physical adultery is, is a picture of spiritual adultery, which is idolatry. And uh, in a, so, so what we see here is the world system as a harlot is meant to draw our attention away from God and to give our worship and devotion and all of our attention to the world system. That's what we see in verse 2 of chapter 17. So he, the, this angel says, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great harlot who sits on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. So this great harlot, with her seductions, lures all the kings of the earth and all of the inhabitants of the world to commit fornication with her. Just like we saw in Proverbs, right? Hey, my bed is ready. My husband's not here. I've put perfume on. Come, let us drink of love until the morning, right? That's the world system luring us in. It lures all the kings of the earth. It lures all the inhabitants of the world to commit spiritual adultery or idolatry. To get drunk. She seduces the world leaders and people of every kind to get drunk. What happens when you get drunk? You lose all inhibitions, right? You know, all of a sudden, you're the life of the party. I think we were talking the other day. It's like you've got, you've got the angry drunk, the sleepy drunk, or the life of the party drunk. But when you get too drunk, right, you lose all your inhibitions. And then committing fornication then becomes that much easier. So drunkenness leads to fornication. The world system with its access to fame, power, and wealth lures people and leaders away from the one true God and into wanton idolatry, which is pictured here as fornication. And the worldly governments, which we have to understand here, right? Government in and of itself is not evil. Government in and of itself is not evil. Government was instituted by God. Now, of course, it's instituted after the fall, not like marriage, which was instituted before the fall, but government was instituted by God and leaders are ordained by God. But they are ordained by God for a purpose, to uphold justice. They, they wield the power of the sword in order to uphold justice. Now, because of the fall, what do you think worldly governments do? They don't uphold justice. What do they do? 
pervert it. They pervert justice. I can give you a bunch of examples, but I think we can all kind of see around us. You look at the news today, just look at, go online, search Google, whatever. You could see all kinds of ways in which our government perverts justice instead of upholding it. Now, it seems like a bad thing here, but again, remember what this angel is inviting John to do. He says, what? He says, come and see the judgment on the harlot, right? The harlot will be judged. He's going to show John the judgment of this great harlot. And again, the main purpose of this cycle of visions, the fifth cycle of visions, is to show the harlot's judgment And later on, we will see at the end of the cycle, the bride's exaltation as the bride is adorned and she comes to the marriage supper of the Lamb, the wedding is consummated, and the bride is exalted. So now let us move on to verses 3 through 5. That's the harlot's introduction. Now we're going to see the harlot's appearance. And after hearing the angel say to John, Come, we see John being carried away in the Spirit into the wilderness. Verse 3. So he carried me away uh, in the Spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast, which was full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So here John now is giving a description of what he sees. So he's carried away in the Spirit into the wilderness, and he sees something, and he's telling us, what he sees. I see this great harlot on a scarlet beast and, it's, and, and it was full of names of blasphemies and this beast had seven heads and ten horns. Now the first thing to note is where John finds himself. Right, He finds himself in this vision in the wilderness. In the wilderness. If you remember back to Revelation chapter 12, that was the third cycle, right? The vision of the woman, the child, and the dragon. After the woman gives birth to the child, the dragon seeks to devour the woman, and the woman is swept away into the wilderness where God has a place prepared for her. And she is there preserved and protected for 42 months or 1,260 days. I forget what the reference is, but it's that sort of time, times, and half a times. The, so the, the people of God, the, the symbolic Israel is seen, the woman is seen fleeing into the wilderness where God has a place for her. That's Revelation 12, verse 6. So in that vision, the wilderness is seen as a place of refuge to which God's people can flee. Now in other contexts, the wilderness is also seen as a place of testing. A place of testing for God's people. When Moses uh, killed the Egyptian servant in, when he was in Egypt, his first 40 years of his life, he fled to where? The, the wilderness of Midian, right? He was there, and he was there for 40 years in the wilderness of Midian, tending his father-in-law's sheep. Israel, when they were brought out of Egypt and on their way to the Promised Land, they wandered in the wilderness for 40 years. Jesus, our Lord, was tempted in the wilderness. So after his baptism, the Holy Spirit is said to to drive him into the wilderness where he would be tempted for 40 days and 40 nights. So the wilderness can also be a place of testing for God's people. But here we see the wilderness as a place of judgment. 
right? If you think of a wilderness, it's a place that is barren. It's a place that is usually desolate. You know, I think we could probably say when we were driving to Wyoming, <laughs> Fred said, we were, this is funny, this is cracking up. We were driving through western Nebraska and we, we crossed the border into Wyoming. He's like, you know, this is a, this is a different nothing than you have in Nebraska. This is, this is the nothing of Wyoming. <laughs> but, it, you know, in those western areas, it can, can kind of look desolate, can look kind of barren. Um, the wilderness is barren, desolate, a place where, um, you know, if you don't have resources, you can easily die of hunger and thirst. And here, this is where the Spirit calls John out into the wilderness to see the great harlot's judgment. So this harlot, who appears to be seductive and alluring, right, is, uh, is going to be placed in a location that will reveal her ugliness, her inner ugliness that, that gives the lie to her outward seduction and beauty. And here in the wilderness, John sees this woman sitting on a scarlet beast. So this great harlot is riding atop of this great beast. Now when you hear the description of this beast, you should be thinking, you know, ding, 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 right? Where did we see seven heads and ten horns before? In the beast in chapter 13, right? Well, even before that, the great dragon had seven heads and ten horns in chapter 12. The, the, the beast in chapter 13 that comes out of the sea has seven heads and ten horns. And here, this beast upon which the harlot is riding has seven heads and ten horns. Now, it might be pretty easy to so, say, well, this is the beast of chapter 13, and I agree, I think it is the beast of chapter 13. Just, just want to caution, sometimes you've know, you got to be careful when you, know, you start making one-to-one equations in the Bible all the time. Not all the time does the same word always mean the same thing in, the, in different contexts. But here, the beast is, uh, I believe, the beast from chapter 13. Uh, the beast is scarlet. In this case, the beast is red thus linking it with the power of Satan. If you remember, Satan was depicted as a great fiery red dragon. And here the beast is red to signify its connection with Satan. And that this is the beast from chapter 13, again, seems even more clear when we see that it has the seven heads and the ten horns, just like the beast coming up out of the sea in Revelation 13.1. And also like that beast in chapter 13, this scarlet beast upon which the harlot rides is full of names of blasphemy. So again, this beast represents all of the ungodly world power that is set up against God. Thus, it blasphemes God. It blasphemes God by forcing people to worship it rather than God. Right? That's what the beast is. It is, it is government gone amok. It is government uh, corrupted and, and, and despoiled as as it seeks to gather worship for itself and to draw people away from the worship of the one true God. Particularly at this time that this was written, at the end of the first century, to John's readers, they were living in those seven cities, right? And, and one of them was the place where Satan dwells. It was the home of emperor worship in the Roman Empire. They had huge statues to the, to the Caesars, and they, they prescribed worship to Caesar. You have to worship Caesar as a god. So they, they, you know, worldly governments, when they're corrupted, want the power for themselves. They want to assume God's power to themselves. And that is what is the blasphemy here. The blasphemy of taking on what 
the worship and, and adoration that is due only to God Himself. Now, seeing this harlot riding on the beast suggests sort of an unholy alliance between the aims of, of sinful debauchery and the aims of violent tyranny. So you get this alliance between the, the, the aims of sinful debauchery and the aims of violent tyranny. And it always seems like those two go hand in hand, right? Uh, sinful immorality and violent tyranny. When a government loses its way, when a government begins to pervert justice, when a government no longer upholds justice and the rights of the individual, immorality always follows. And the reverse is true too. The flip side of that is true as well. When a society becomes immoral, when a society sort of gives in to its baser instincts, tyranny can't be far behind. Again, I invite you, look at the news. Read the newspapers. Watch CNN or Fox News or whatever. And you could see the immorality in our culture and the, the growing, creeping tyranny in our country. And then just think of how it is in other countries that are, don't have nearly the protections that we have by, by our Constitution. Those protections, of course, which are being eroded every day as we, even as we breathe right now. So John continues in verse 4. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. So when you look at the harlot, you notice, now this, this woman, she's decked out. right? She is dressed to the nines, as they say. I actually had to look that up. I was like, where, where did that phrase come from? Apparently it's like an old Scottish phrase from like the 18th century. Some author came up with it. I have no idea. Dressed to the nines. She is dressed to kill, both metaphorically and literally, right? She is, she is arrayed in scarlet and purple. Being arrayed in scarlet and purple was very costly. It was very hard to find these dyes in that period of time. So it was very pricey to be dressed this way. She's decked out with gold and jewelry and all kinds of things, right? Now contrast this, if you want, you can flip over to Revelation 19, verse 8. Contrast this with the bride. So you've got the harlot dressed in gold, uh, purple and scarlet with a gold and jewels and decked out. And then in Revelation 19, 8, we see the bride of the Lamb. So unto her, that is the bride, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen, clean and bright, for the linen is the righteous acts of the saints. So while the harlot is dressed in red and purple and gold and jewelry, the bride is dressed in white linen, which suggests purity. It suggests chastity. And, and of course, the, the other kind of dress is not that. <laughs> it's alluring. It's, it's meant to be seductive. So you've got seduction versus chastity here. The woman on the beast is a harlot and she dresses like a harlot while it's attractive, it is a temptation to immorality. And it, you know, Okay, I already said that. Um, 
Now finally we see that she holds a golden cup and in her hand, and the cup is, as we see here, full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornications. Now given all the imagery that we've seen so far, uh, what could possibly be the abominations that fill her cup? It could be a bunch of things, right? I mean, consider all the instructions that God gives to the people in the Old Testament, particularly like Leviticus 18. If you look at Leviticus 18, we're not going to look at it and, and we're not going to read it, but Leviticus 18 is God giving instructions to the people as they're about to enter the promised land. And he says, the land you're about to enter, where the Canaanites dwell, they do all of these wicked things. I don't want you to do these things. They are all abomination. They are all toiva. That's the word in Hebrew. Something that is disgusting. Something that is abominable. Something that turns God's stomach. Don't do these things. All kinds of things are listed as abomination. An abomination isn't just something that is sinful. It is something that is, that is grossly sinful. It is something that reviles God. It's, it's like, almost like it's God-repellent. Right? You know, it's, it's the kind of sin that you know, God would, would, well, often has done in the past, right? rain fire down upon. Right? Think of Sodom and Gomorrah. Right? Sodom and Gomorrah would be sort of like the epitome of abomination. What did God do to that town? Right? He rained fire from heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah and leveled it to the ground. So here, this harlot sits atop this beast and she is dressed seductively. She's dressed to kill. She's got all the scarlet and the purple and the gold and the jewelries. And she's carrying this wonderful looking golden cup. And inside the cup is filth. It's a disgusting brew. Again, think of the the jarring contrast this image presents, right? A glamorous woman with a golden cup its beauty on the outside, and its ugliness on the inside. Think of what Jesus says to the Pharisees, right, in Matthew 23, when he's pronouncing the woes on them. And one of them in particular says, you Pharisees, you are, you are hypocrites. You are like, what, whitewashed tombs, right? The whitewashed tomb looks beautiful on the outside, but what's inside the whitewashed tomb? Death. Ugliness, filthiness, bones. Death is often something con uh, uh, connected in the Old Testament with uncleanness, right? You, were, you would become unclean and unable to worship God in his, in his temple or in His tabernacle if you touched anything that was dead, right? If you touched something that was dead, you were unclean and you had to do some kind of ritual to be clean again. So this harlot is beautiful on the outside and ugly, full of death and, and defilement and abominations on the inside. And finally, John sees something written on the harlot's forehead in verse 5 where he sees here, and on her forehead was a name written, Mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and of the abominations of the earth. And here's where we find out that this harlot on the beast is Babylon. Now, I don't need to go into too much detail. We've looked at this before. We've mentioned this before. Babylon, as we've seen in the past lessons, is representative of pretty much everything that stands against God. Throughout the entire Bible, Babylon has sort of been the foil to God. It is sort of like the Joker to the God's Batman, right? It is Lex Luthor to the God's Superman, 
Babylon is the foil. It is representative of everything that stands opposed to God. Genesis 11, right? The Tower of Babel. That was where the people of the earth gathered together to build a tower that was, in a sense, an assault on the kingdom of heaven. So we're going to build a tower, we're going to ascend to heaven, and we're going to be where God is. And God says, no, you're not. (laughs) And he confuses the language and the building project falls to pieces. Babylon is the place of empire. Or, sorry, the place of exile is where God's people were sent when they were dis- when they disobeyed and God judged them in exile. If you remember in Daniel chapter four, when we looked at that some time ago, Nebuchadnezzar he is he is looking at the great kingdom he has built, and he says, "Is this not Babylon the great which I have built? Babylon the great, the same name that is given to this harlot." In fact, in Isaiah 14, in a prophecy against the king of Babylon, the king of Babylon is likened to Satan himself. It is the place where Satan dwells, Babylon. In the New Testament, Babylon is often seen as code for Rome. 1 Peter 5.13, Peter says, I write to you from Babylon. He is writing to them from Rome. In fact, many scholars believe that the harlot on this beast is Rome. If you look at what we're going to see the next time in verses 9 through 14, I'm not going to read it, but the description there seems to suggest very strongly that this is Rome, because we see that the seven heads upon which the harlot rides are seven mountains. Rome is a city that sat upon seven mountains. We see these kings, right? Seven kings, five have fallen, one is, and the other has not yet come. Often, you know, some scholars believe that refers to a list of Roman emperors. You know, five have passed. They're in the time of the fifth one. There's one yet to come. Now, if you remember way, 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 way back in the beginning, we looked at the various ways to interpret Revelation. And one of them was a, called the preterist view. The preterist view is one that suggests that most, if not all, of Revelation's prophecies and visions speak of something that happened way in the past, right? So that the preterist view sees the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD as sort of the, the, final, the finality of, of, the, of the judgment. So everything that happens uh, in the book of Revelation happens before the year 70 AD. And it, the preterists like this idea that the harlot is, is Rome because it fits in with their interpretive grid very easily. Now, while for John and his readers, Rome would be the beast, right? I mean, John is writing to a time when the emperor Domitian is in power. That was the, like, one of the great uh, persecutions of the church occurred under his reign. So Rome was in power at the time. Rome would have been the manifestation of the beast during the time of the writing of Revelation. There have been many manifestations of the beast. During the time of the Reformation, the Reformers, Calvin and Luther and company, they thought the Roman Catholic Church was the beast. Right? And we, when, we, when we looked at the beast, right, we, we, we looked at all the, the ways that people said, no, this is the beast, this is the beast. Well, it's like, the beast then, in a sense, can't be really identified as any one thing. It is kind of like all of them. All of these manifestations of the beast, all these manifestations of of, of you know, these things that stand against God. Now, I, I believe the Bible argues that at the end there will be sort of like a penultimate or a sort of like a consummate beast that we'll, we'll see near the end. 
But everything leading up to this, you see many beasts. Rome is a beast. Hitler could have been a beast, right? Some people thought Reagan was the beast. I, you know, I wouldn't agree with that, but you see where I'm going with this, right? For John and his readers, Rome would have been the, the manifestation of the beast in their day. But again, going back to what we saw in Daniel, particularly Daniel 7, which is where this beast imagery comes from, we have to remember that people see that vision in Daniel 7 and they say, well, okay, well, the first beast is Babylon, the second one is Persia, the third one is Greece, and the fourth one is Rome. Problem is, when the angel explains the vision to Daniel, he doesn't tell him any of that. He just says the four beasts are four kingdoms that are coming up out of the sea and they'll rule over the earth. There's going to be one right after the other, right after the other, right, and, they're, and they're all depicted as beasts. Right, and he doesn't. The angels doesn't say this one's Babylon, this one's Persia, this one's Greece, this one's Rome. That's what we say. We look at that, and that's how we interpret it. But the angel doesn't give that interpretation to Daniel for one reason or the other. All right. Finally, verse six. The great harlot's transgression. Now, so if this image of the harlot on her beast is not bad enough, now we see what it is that the great harlot will be judged for in verse 6. I saw the woman drunk with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. And when I saw her, I marveled with great amazement. So this harlot here, all dressed to the nines, is drunk. And she's not drunk on alcohol. She's not drunk on wine or whiskey or anything of the sort. She is drunk on the blood of the saints and on the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. So this harlot atop the beast has two means of attack to, uh, to, to get at the saints of Jesus Christ. There is persecution through the state and there is seduction through society and culture. These are the two ways that the world system, that everything that is aligned against God tries to get at the people of God. If she can't get you by one way, she's going to try to get you by the other. And this just highlights the, the danger of Christians living in a hostile world. We either pay with our lives through, through physical persecution or martyrdom, or we pay with our souls through compromise. And we see both tactics being used in the world today as we speak, right? There are places in this world, Asia, China, uh, think of uh, Arab countries in which you know the... the you know, Islamic you know, governments are out to get anything that is not Islamic. There are places in the world today where Christians are being ground in the teeth of the beast, if you will. The ravenous beast of the state where they seek out Christians and they, and they seek to martyr them. They seek to, to silence them in these countries. In other places like the U.S. or Europe or Canada, the church is not so much being persecuted by the state as it is being tempted by the seductions of cultural success and acceptance. The church in Europe is essentially all but dead. Right? There may be a few faithful churches here and there, but the great institutional churches of, of, the, of many of those European countries are dead. Many of their churches are empty. Many of the Christians are Christians in name only. There is no, hardly any life in the church in Europe. And same thing is happening in Canada. And the same thing is happening in the United States. 
We are lured by the seductions of success and acceptance in this world. And when John sees this great harlot, he says he is marveled with great amazement. We ought to marvel too, right? Culture looks good. Who doesn't want success and popularity? Who doesn't want likes on their Instagram or their Twitter account? Who doesn't want to have their Facebook posts shared? Who doesn't want to be loved and adored by all? I mean, no one wants to be persecuted. No one wants to be rejected by the world. However, John's vision here shows us the lure of the harlot leads to death. Just like those warnings we saw in Proverbs, right? Don't go after the adulterous woman. Her ways lead to death. The problem is, when the carrot of worldly success fails, guess what comes after that? If you don't go for the carrot, you get the stick, right? That's, that's the beast. That's when the beast munches you with its teeth. Persecution follows. And that's, again, something I think we see happening in our world today, too, right? As the church t- continues to try to take a stand in this world, the world is no longer going to hold that carrot of success and acceptance. It's going to start persecuting the church. If you don't give in to the program, then you're going to start feeling the stick. Well, that's all I have for tonight. That is. Now, next week, we see the meeting of... Or not next week. Sorry, it's going to be next month, right? In two weeks would be Easter Sunday, so we're not going to meet on Easter Sunday. So the next meeting will be March, sorry, May 1st, May Day. We'll be meeting on May Day. We can, we can sort of have an anti-communist uh, party here as well. So, <laughs> but uh, but uh, yeah, so the next time we'll meet, Lord willing, will be May 1st. Um, yeah, again, this great harlot is, is this idea of world society, culture, that tries to lure the church to compromise her values tries to lure the church into idolatry, which is the sense, really it's a sort of sense of a, a spiritual adultery, to give up following God and to give in to the lures of the world.